We've got a little curveball for you this morning. Uh, There will not be slides, and your outline is not going to make much sense to you. Uh, I I found out about 24 hours ago that Pastor Joel um, is not feeling well enough to preach this morning. Uh, So he is not here. I am here. Uh, Surprise, I guess. Although I don't know if you knew that it was supposed to be him anyway. Uh, The good news is uh, I love the parables. I have lots of thoughts about the parables and have taught on them and preached on them many times. Uh, And so it gives me a chance to share about one of the parables that wasn't going to be in our series originally this summer, uh, as well as just to share with you some of this, uh, as you'll see, those of you that read the newsletter, um, just some new reflections this time through uh, reading and studying the parables again. So... uh, just so you know, you can kind of, I don't know, fold that bulletin up, and, uh, or you can, you can write in your own notes as we go. Well, uh, one, I'm trying to think, it was probably fifth grade, sixth grade, it's funny that I don't remember, uh, but it was, it was let's, let's call it sixth grade, it was the fall, it was a classic Ohio fall day, meaning that it was uh, humid and sunless, uh, nice over, overcast sky, uh, and just sticky just to be outside. Uh, and I was just finishing up a very frustrating soccer game as a sixth grader. Uh, I was on a team that year that won one game all year, uh, and it was in a small league. There were only, I think, five teams total, and so we played every team like three times. And so this was the last time through with the best team in our league, um, and they... We knew we were terrible, and they knew they were terrible, and they were kind of having fun at our expense that game, or at least that's how I felt. Um, It's always frustrating, at least for me, to lose, Uh, but I felt like they were rubbing it in, uh, that they weren't taking it seriously, that they were rude during the game. Some of them, in my opinion, were playing dirty. Now, keep in mind, it's just my point of view, so I'm probably a little bit biased here. But by the end of the game, I was frustrated, I had enough, I was angry, and so I'm I'm fuming as I walk off the field. Everyone's grabbing water, snacks, drinks, Uh, and and my parents, seeing my mood, somehow they were able to detect that even at a short distance, uh, said to me, hey, where are you going? And I said, I'm I'm getting out of here. This was a stupid game, Uh, this team, they're full of jerks. Uh, and they said, well, isn't your team, aren't you going to go through and shake hands after the game? I said, well, they can do what they want. I'm not doing it. Uh, th- this team did not play a good game, and I'm not going to pretend that they did. Uh, and my parents, wisely, didn't try to refute any of this. They said, well, I know, we watched the same, you, same game you watched, and yes, some of those guys on the other team uh, were not very nice. They said, but it's maybe worth considering That sportsmanship isn't about the other people, it's about you. Are you a good sport? I said, my dad said, look, you know, anyone can be a good sport when their opponent has earned their respect. Anyone can be a good sport when they win, almost everyone is. He said, the question is, are you the kind of person that handles yourself with dignity and with humility, even when the other team has some jerks on it. Oh, man. I rolled my eyes, sighed dramatically, and jogged back over, because I knew who I was, or at least who I wanted to be. I wanted to be the kind of person 
that had some dignity, even when I lost to jerks. In Luke 10, an expert in the religious law, a lawyer, approaches Jesus, and he asks him a pretty simple, straightforward question, you know. Hey, Jesus, in 30 seconds, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus famously throws the question right back at him. He says, I don't know. You tell me you're the expert. And the man answers. He says, well, I would say, love God with everything that you are and then some, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And to that, Jesus responds, man, great answer. You are correct. Do that, and you will live. Now, that should have been, you would think, what the lawyer wanted to hear. But it says that the man wanted to justify himself. So he asked another question. I imagine this is a problem with lawyers. He says, but but teacher, who is my neighbor? Now, he sometimes gets a hard time for this, but I just want to go on record as saying... I think this is a reasonable, I would even say important question, especially for a lawyer. This man understands correctly, as Jesus has just affirmed, that God has called him to love his neighbor. And furthermore, uh, he agrees with Jesus that this command, together with the command to love God, is at the heart, it's at the very heart of what God requires from his people. And so if one desires to keep this clearly vital command, it would seem that the clarification, who is my neighbor, is the key clarification. If he doesn't know who is and who is not a neighbor, how can he tell if he is being obedient to the law? Well, this question takes the conversation in a very different direction. It at first looked Like this conversation was going to be about behavior. Remember, what must I do? What must I do? Just as for that matter, I thought that my post-game soccer situation was also about behavior. Would I or would I not walk through that line, shake hands, and say, good game? But the reality is that both this passage and my post-match situation were actually about identity. They're actually about identity, about who we are and who we are becoming in Christ. And the lawyer's follow-up question exposes this because he doesn't ask, how do I love my neighbor? He asks, who? Who is my neighbor? Now, the important thing to note here, I think, is that the expert's question, the key issue is the identity of the other person. Did you catch that? In this case, what is the identity of his potential neighbor? And given the way the command is worded, this, I think, again, makes sense. But I want to point out the assumption that lies beneath this question, this identity of the neighbor question. His assumption is that God's call to him, his obligation to love, is dependent upon the other person in question. Uh, We might ask his question more bluntly and maybe more honestly by asking, who under the law deserves or is entitled to his love? Is it my family and my close friends? 
Are they entitled? Or is it those who live within walking distance of my house? Is it those who love me? Or we could come at this question from still a different direction and ask it this way. Because I think this gets to the heart of what the the lawyer is worried about. Whom can I lawfully refuse to love? Who can I lawfully refuse to love? Who can I look at who who is in need and refuse to help and still be upright before God? Who can I look at who's in need? Who can I know in my life is in desperate need of help and ignore and still be upright before God? That's what he wants to know. Now, those don't sound very charitable. That's because they're not. But if we're honest, I think we have all of us probably done some similar calculations. I would even argue that it's human nature and a lot of it's unconscious. We are, of course, happy to love the lovable. Jesus says as much. We are happy to help those who have helped us. We are happy to serve those that we see serving others. We judge those people, we judge them, to be worthy objects of our love, deserving of our aid. We have all, often without thinking, thereby supplied our own definition for who is our neighbor. And we've done it according to our preferences and our judgment. Our neighbors are who we say they are. It's those we have decided are worthy. But Jesus, when he answers, rejects this paradigm entirely. And instead, he tells a parable. He tells a story that puts the command in a totally different context. And it generates a very new and different question. He says this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by. On the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you might have. Then Jesus turned to the lawyer and asked, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. So Jesus said to him, Go then and do likewise. Notice, Jesus' questioner was concerned about the identity of the other person. Who must he lawfully regard as his neighbor? But Jesus has turned the question around and asked, to whom are you a neighbor? Or as the parable would have it, who was a neighbor 
to the man in need. This is still a question about neighbors and identity, but the all-important difference is that in Jesus' question, the issue is our identity, not the identity of the other. Now, this is hopefully a point many of you are familiar with, but I want to press it just a little bit further this morning. We've already seen the problem with asking, who is my neighbor, is that it implies that our obligation is dependent upon the other person in question. Jesus' question, on the other hand, who was a neighbor, assumes that love is driven not by the other person's identity, not by what they've done, but by who we are. Let that sink in a moment. We are called, we might even say required, to love others, not because of who they are, not because of what they have done, but because of who we are, and more to the point, because of who we are becoming in Christ Jesus. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we give our allegiance to him, we are adopting a new identity that he has given to us. We have preserved it right there in the names we have for ourselves. Whether you call yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus, our identity now is bound up in Christ. It's bound up in Jesus. That is who we are. It's who we are becoming. And our new identity in Christ compels us to love our city and our neighbors and our families and coworkers because Jesus loved and served his city and his neighbors and his family and his coworkers. And again, this isn't simply a task. It's not a box we're going to check. We serve not because God has public service quotas for us, like, you know, heaven was the national honor society of the afterlife. We don't serve because we judge other people to be worthy of it. We do it. We love and serve our neighbors because that is who God has made us to be in Christ Jesus. We serve because that's who we are. Now let me make a point about the bigger picture and maybe a clarification. Obviously, part of our hope in this as followers of Jesus uh, is that in living this way, we might reach more people for Jesus. But here's where I want to offer the clarification. I think sometimes we fall into the trap of, of viewing love for our neighbors as a means to an end. And that's not all bad. It's better than not doing it at all. But it does start to feel disingenuous, I think, to the people who are on the other end of it. So let me suggest thinking about it this way instead. Ask God to help you love your neighbors first, not as a means to evangelism, but simply because doing so will make you more like the person God created you to be, more like the person Jesus redeemed you to be. Let's embrace and then strive to live out the new identity we have been given in Jesus. Let's start there. And then I guarantee you, if we will actually care personally for the people around us, two things, I promise, will follow. First, no one will be able to stop you from sharing the gospel with them. Think of loving your neighbor not as a means, but as the reason 
that you might share Jesus with them. Look, if, if you love someone, if you care deeply for them, you will crawl over broken glass to make sure that they hear the good news about Jesus Christ, that they have access to new life in Christ. I always think about it like this. I, I was eager for my children to follow Jesus, uh, but I didn't love them as a means to that end. I, I was eager for them to follow Jesus because I already loved them. I think if we start by loving and serving our neighbors, we will find ourselves compelled to share the good news with them because we already love them. We will naturally share the good news with those we love. So why not start there? Second, you will find that if we start by living according to our new identity in Christ, if we start by loving and serving God and others, we will receive a more sympathetic hearing when we share our faith. Many of you, I hope, have experienced this personally. If you are a person who helps shovel out your neighbor at 5 a.m., if you are a person who sits with those who are grieving and just listens and loves them, if you are a person who shows relentless kindness, even when others are rude to you, then your life becomes its own argument for the truth of the gospel. Look, I am convinced there are few things more compelling than a life that genuinely reflects the love and wisdom and humility of our Lord. Look, others can still see that and hear the good news and choose not to believe. But in response to such a life, there is no counter-argument and there is no rebuttal. It is its own argument for the truth of the gospel. I want to end with a story that I hope will kind of tie some of these ideas together and maybe even inspire us a little bit. It's a story I've used before, uh, but I think it's a great example of this. Uh, it comes from Acts chapter 16. Uh, Paul and Silas are traveling on a missionary journey, uh, and as they're in one city, uh, they're, they're going around, they're ministering to others, they're sharing the good news, uh, and, and a slave woman who is possessed uh, recognizes them for who they are and starts yelling. She, she becomes like their, their hype woman, uh, here we have followers of Jesus, and she's becoming a distraction. Um, they're trying to talk to people. She's kind of yelling about what they're doing. Uh, and so Paul looks at her and casts the demon out. Now, you would think this would be cause for celebration. Unfortunately, we find out the, the people that owned her uh, took advantage of her possession uh, to sell people for fortune-telling. So they were losing income. They were upset. So they went to the authorities. They complained about Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas, uh, for minding their own business and helping, were thrown in prison. Now, if you were Paul or Silas, if I were, we might be tempted uh, in prison to reflect on the deep unfairness of life. What is it that they have done that would deserve being thrown in prison? But they don't. Even as the chains are still being snapped on, Paul and Silas decide that if God has brought them here, he must want them here. And so they start worshiping, singing together. Eventually, as they're singing that night, the place where they were locked up was shaken. 
A weird kind of earthquake that appears to have done no damage, but has opened the doors to all the cells. I wonder who could be behind that. Now, you need to know that when this happened, the jailer, the Roman jailer, panicked. Uh, Rome had a deep belief in, um, I guess you'd call it administrative accountability. Uh, If you were the jailer uh, and the people you were supposed to make sure stayed in jail escaped, Rome said, look, justice must be done. You can take their place. And so the jailer, seeing all the doors thrown open, panics. He falls to his knees. He draws his sword to end his own life. And he hears Paul yell, wait, we are all still here. And the jailer, in relief and gratitude, comes to Paul and says, tell me, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him, And we learn that the jailer and his whole household come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Paul and Silas had embraced the new identity they had been given in Jesus. Jesus had transformed them. They understood that they were called to be neighbors wherever they were, even when they were thrown wrongly in prison. And that meant that no matter where God put them, People were going to be loved and served, and they were going to hear the gospel. And as a result, that meant that wherever Paul and Silas went, people were hearing the good news and responding in faith. I like to think about this from the point of view of the Roman Empire, right? So put yourself in their shoes for a moment if you can. I mean, how annoying are these guys, right? You can't, no matter what you do with them, uh, their, their agenda, their mission goes forward, right? If you leave them alone, you just leave them out in the streets, they're, they're casting out demons, they're proclaiming the good news, and people from all over the Roman world are pledging their allegiance not to Caesar, but to Jesus Christ. So if you think, okay, we've had enough of that, we gotta, we gotta lock these guys up, we gotta get them away from all the people. So they throw them in prison, and what do Paul and Silas do? They convert the fellow prisoners, and the jailer, and the jailer's whole family. What are they supposed to do with these guys? I mean, you put Paul under house arrest in Rome, and people travel from all over the region to sit outside his house and to hear his teaching, and then they take it back with them where they came from, and the good news about Jesus multiplies. How frustrating. There's nowhere you can put these Christians that the kingdom of God does not go with them because it's who they are. It's their identity. So why is it that Paul has an impact anywhere and everywhere they put him? I want to suggest to you this morning, it's because Paul had started asking Jesus' question instead of the lawyer's question. Not is this person my neighbor? Not, do I need to, am I obligated to love and serve this person? But instead, he started asking, will I be a neighbor to them? Am I a neighbor? My prayer for us as a congregation this morning is that we would be people like that. Is that we would be people as we go throughout our lives that would more and more start asking Jesus' question, who am I? Who am I becoming in Christ Jesus? 
Who has God called me to be? Am I a neighbor? My hope is that no matter what workplace or school or neighborhood God puts us in, we will start loving and serving the people around us. No matter how we're treated, think of Paul and Silas thrown in prison and they can't be stopped. No matter who the others are or what they've done or how they live, we love them, we serve them, and we share the gospel because that is who we are. We are neighbors. If we live that way, I put it to you, it scarcely matters what our, where our culture goes or how the people around us change. If we embrace our identity in Christ, if we are neighbors, then I believe that like Paul, like Silas, we will earn an audience for the gospel wherever we go. I want to close with uh, just one last little thing. So I, I want to, we're going from here shortly, very briefly. Uh, we'll head out. We're going to go to Lake Nokomis. Uh, we will celebrate uh, four baptisms together or more. If anyone's feeling the spirit move them this morning, we can do that too. Uh, I just want to say baptism is, you, you won't be surprised to hear me say, uh, fundamentally about identity. It is a public profession of faith and what these four young people are going to do later this morning is they are going to stand in that lake out in front of all of you and in front of whoever else might be watching and they are going to say, I identify with Jesus Christ. I am his and he is mine. He is my Lord and my Savior and I live to serve him. Uh, they are going to symbolically embrace that new identity they have been given in Jesus Christ. This is why, for what it's worth, we're dunkers, all right? If you get baptized here, we're putting you all the way under. But this is one of the main reasons why. Because you are identifying with the crucified, buried, and resurrected Lord. And when we do that, you are symbolically standing with him, saying, I identify with him. Uh, and I want to say, uh, raise your hand if you are under the age, well, let's, if you haven't graduated from high school yet. Raise your hand. I'm not going to, you know. Okay. I want to say something to you. I, uh, this is spontaneous for me, but I thought of this this morning uh, when I was running through this one last time uh, because I knew we have these baptisms coming. They're all younger people. Uh, but what I want to tell you is this. All right, I'm almost 40 now, and I can tell you that when I look back on my life, uh, I can tell you there is no time like the time when I was in school when I recognized the power of being a neighbor. Man, you guys, you, you are in school, you see, you even feel, I bet, right? You feel the pressure when you are alone, when you're in a class where you don't have friends, uh, when you're going into the lunchroom and you've got your lunch and you're looking around and you're, you're going, uh-oh, who here do I know? Like, that's a scary feeling. And all, all of your peers experience that. Man, what I want to tell you is God is giving you an extraordinary opportunity. If you will be a neighbor, man, if you see that kid who's alone and you think, you know what, I'm going to be a neighbor. That can, have, that can transform that kid's life. It's tremendous power. And it's a gift God has given you. You know, later on, adults... We pretend that we're not scared about all that. We pretend we're not lonely. But kids, you guys feel it. And you can see when somebody needs that. When somebody's being made fun of in the hallway. When someone's being picked on. 
Be the person that steps up next to them, says, hey, stop it. That's my friend. Be a friend. Be a neighbor. God has called you to that. If you are here and you're young, but you've given your allegiance to Jesus, that's who you are. Pray that God would give you the courage to live that out. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Father, I pray that for all of us. We all have the opportunity to be neighbors regularly. We all face the same choice the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan faced on a regular basis where we see people who are in need, people who are hurting, people who need help. And we have to decide, are we going to ask the lawyer's question or are we going to ask your question? Are we going to ask, what must I do? Or are we going to ask, who am I? Am I a neighbor? Father, I pray that you would help all of us to embrace the new identity you have given us in Jesus as a gift. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to be a neighbor. Lord, I want to pray specifically for our, for our kids who are in school this morning, our students, our children. Lord, they have a tremendous opportunity to make an enormous difference in the lives of their peers by choosing to be a friend, choosing to be a neighbor, to step out in faith and to be the young men and women that you have called them to be. God, I pray that you would open their eyes to those opportunities and that when the moment comes that your spirit would give them the words and the courage to act. God, I pray that our church might become known for that, that we are a people who love and serve others not because of who they are or what they've done, but because of who we are, because of who you are. In your name we pray, amen.